If you have a Bible, would you like to turn to Genesis uh, chapter 41? Genesis chapter 41. We've been in the, uh, the story, the life of Joseph and his, his brothers uh, for a few weeks now. Uh, and uh, uh, Grant was preaching last week uh, from chapter 41, which is the point at which in the story, I'm assuming that you have some awareness of it already, but you'll manage to catch up, I'm sure. Uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt has had two really disturbing dreams. Nobody can interpret his dreams that he knows of, uh, but then his cupbearer, his butler, steps up and kind of re- at last remembers uh, that once he had a reason to be in prison and he met there a man called Joseph who had the ability to interpret dreams. So they get Joseph from the prison where he's been for years. As Grant pointed out, they give him a clean shave and then he's brought before the Pharaoh, the king of the whole land. Pharaoh says to him, look, I've heard that you can interpret dreams. He says, no, no, it's not me. I can't, inter- I can't interpret dreams. But there is a God uh, who gives the interpretation to dreams. Uh, and so he, he outlines these two dreams, the, uh, the, the seven fat cows that come out of the river Nile, uh, followed by seven thin cows, and the seven thin cows eat up the seven fat cows, but they stay thin. Something similar happens with ears of corn, and Pharaoh is saying, what's the meaning of this? Well, God is going to send seven years of abundance, but following that, there'll be seven years of famine. You ought to choose someone um, with understanding who can put in plan, uh, put in place a plan uh, to help for those years of famine, to store up food. And so suddenly, uh, well, Joseph is put in that position. So we're going to read uh, Genesis 41 from verse 41 uh, to the end of the chapter. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command and men shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name, how does it go again, Grant? Zaphonath Paneah, is that right? Um, And gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, 
It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. And Pharaoh told, told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you just for the privilege. Thank you for the freedom we have to gather in your name. Uh, Lord God, thank you the provision of your word uh, stored up and given to us to do us good, to cause faith to rise in what you declare to be true and real and worthwhile and praiseworthy and excellent. We want to fix our minds on you. We want to fix our minds on what is good. Lord, we pray, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to, to shine a light on your word and to shine a light in our hearts, to help us to see, to help us to receive your word with faith and put it into effect in our lives. Lord God, would you meet with us now? Thank you that you meet with us as we worship you. Lord God, thank you for the encouragement that's just stirred up and brought up as we're declaring truth in song, hearing different people contribute, Lord. Now we say, God, come and, come and reveal your word to us afresh, whether we're very familiar with this passage of Scripture and this story, or whether it's very new to us. Lord, you, can spe you speak powerfully through your words. We invite you to do that in our hearts and minds this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. All the way through uh, these chapters, these later chapters in Genesis, as we've been going through uh, the life and times of Joseph and his brothers, we've been seeing all the way through that God is at work. We reminded last week that God, uh, God has never fallen asleep. God uh, doesn't just doze off. Um, God doesn't lose concentration. God doesn't kind of forget his train of thought. Have you ever, uh, you want, I can't imagine, I don't really understand how this can happen, but um, that you can be reading a book. I don't know if you read before you turn the light out. Have you ever woken up with the light still on and like the book on your face? Does, has that ever happened to anyone? Um, that can happen to us. We, we, we wake up and think, oh, well, Oh, where, where was I? What was I thinking? What was I doing? What, what page was I on? Oh, I, I can't find my place. God doesn't ever have to remind himself. God doesn't have to put a bookmark in things, just a, re a reminder. Now, where was I? God's always on it. God's always active. He's not asleep. He, he doesn't ever have to improvise. He doesn't have to make things up on the hoof. He's never ill-prepared for the moment. He's not thinking, oh, I hope they don't realize uh, I'm kind of on the fly here. 
doesn't have to do that. He's always on it. He all, he's always working. He's always uh, in control. That's been a, a repeated theme all the way through the series. At, um, at, at a massive national level, God's in control. God's in control of the family of God in Canaan. God's in control of all uh, Egypt, including Pharaoh's dreams. God's in control of the biggest things going on in the planet. And God's in control of the fine detail. He's in control of the, the massive ups and downs of Joseph's life, believe it or not. And we've looked at some of the horrific lows that Joseph has experienced. We're looking, we're, in reading this passage, we've, we've come to a high point in Joseph's experience as well. All the way through, at the grandest level and at the finest level of detail, we have a God who is sovereign, in control, and he's, he's active. He's not kind of passive. He's, he's not disinterested. He's not kind of failing to give his attention to his responsibilities. Uh, we see this revealed in Jesus. That Jesus, when he came, would say things like, uh, well, my father is working, and so I too must work. I only do what I see my father doing. Implication is, God is at work. God is is doing things. God will do even greater things than this, Jesus will say. Jesus reveals to us a God who's thoroughly interested, thoroughly involved, thoroughly in control. Sometimes uh, we can kind of, uh, in our minds we can paint a different picture, that it's only in unusual circumstances. It's once in a while God might do something spectacular. Otherwise, he's very distant. Not really that involved in the world, not that involved in a nation, not that involved uh, in a meeting like this. Just doing his own thing, but once in a while we hope that he might show up. And maybe you're here and you don't believe in God. You've got a different worldview. Well, I'd kind of still ask you the question, what's the God like that you don't believe in? Maybe the God that you don't believe in is a careless unpleasant, detached, uninvolved, busy with something else. No, the, the gospel, the whole scripture reveals to us a God who's, who's fundamentally at work, interested and involved in all things and he is working to a plan. He's not just making things up on the hoof and he's uh, not just working to a plan but he's working to a conclusion. We could turn to uh, lots of scripture. I'll just uh, bring a few uh, to our attention. One would be uh, in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, uh, Paul writes, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Describes God. He is... Uh, he's, uh, he has a plan, the plan of him who works out everything uh, in conformity with the purpose of his will. Uh, we've also looked a couple of times. Uh, a, a key verse for this subject matter and for this series would be also at Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. We've noticed before, it doesn't say that we know that in some things God is working for good. We know that 
in a few things. We know that rarely, but on occasion, God is working for good. No, we know that in all things, God is working for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And why are we looking then at this, uh, this story of the life of Joseph? Uh, but to show and to demonstrate that God is working even amidst the rubbish things that we don't enjoy. God is working even in the midst of things that grieve him and do not please him. God's still working. As well as God working in things that do please him and don't grieve him. And that involves even working through sin. When we think of what Joseph's brothers did to him, snatched away his cloak, pushed him in a pit, and the only thing, as it were, that stopped them from killing their own brother was when they saw some slave traders going past. And that gave them a different idea. Oh, we don't have to shed his blood, but we can still get rid of him. Let's have him trafficked. What? We're seeing that God was at work in that. We're seeing again that, that, that God was at work when his, when his cloak was ripped from him again. When Potiphar's wife uh, is, has been tempting him, but now she's going to turn on him and accuse him. And he runs, leaves his cloak behind. God was working in those moments. God's working when he's in a prison. And God's working here when he's elevated. We, saw, uh, we heard from, from Grant last week suddenly he's taken from the pit of a prison into a palace and uh, into a position of basically being prime minister of a nation. And if we, if we want to see another example of the, the mind-blowing, head-scratching sovereignty of God, this points us to an even more uh, awesome and awful uh, Example. If you turn to Luke chapter 22 and verse 22, Jesus, knowing that he's going to be crucified for the sins of the world, knowing that he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest disciples, knowing that he's going to be falsely tried and accused and nailed to a cross and insulted, knowing all that was, ha- that was about to happen, he says in Luke chapter, 20, uh, chapter 22, Verse 22, and speaking of himself, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. He knows that everything that's about to happen has been decreed by God. The betrayal, the painful night of of unanswered prayer, the arrest, the trial. The beatings, the violence, the insults, and the execution, that's been decreed by God. God has determined to do that, to bring about good, working good. Jesus lived it and died it. And he can say, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. God is God. He's sovereignly at work. Judas is responsible for his sin, but God's at work. God, a God who is at work in the midst of suffering and sin. He was at work in the gospel, at work in Jesus' life, and at work here uh, all the way back in this story that somehow kind of points us forward to, um, 
to Jesus and all that Jesus would do for us. God is working to a plan. God is working to a conclusion that nothing can thwart. God is working the big picture and God is working the fine details. God is working in things that please him and God is even working in events that grieve him. God is working in personal highs and he is faithful in personal lows. What's the God like that you believe in? Is he in control? Is he faithful? Is he sovereign? Is he active? Is he working all things for good? As we go through this passage today, let's just consider a little bit more. Uh, what is God like and how does he work? I'm going to give you three things before we look at our, our response. When we look at this passage in Genesis 41, we see that God is merciful. That's what he's like. God is merciful. How? How does he work? He works mercifully. We see the seven years of abundance. During the seven years of abundance, in verse 47, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance just to stress the word again, in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the field surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Now, we're hearing there about the activity of Joseph, what Joseph did in his position, what he, he, he decided on a plan. We'll, we'll gather the, the, the food, we'll gather grain in the nearest city. That way it'll be accessible when the time comes. He was, he was active. He was put in this position, but he was doing a lot of work. But let's think about what God was doing. God was being true to his word, and God was giving ahead of time seven years of abundance. This is revealing to us a God who provides ahead of time. A God who is generous. A God who was so generous, who provided so much that it was beyond measure. Records couldn't be kept. How much of a surplus of grain they had. We, we, we seal that this is, this is off the scale. And this reveals something of what God is like. We had a, uh, a wedding here. Uh, yesterday, Rory and uh, Emma, part of this church, uh, got married. Wonderful uh, occasion. And um, I haven't counted, uh, but over the years, I may have conducted 30 uh, weddings. It's funny because it doesn't actually have to be me. It doesn't actually have to be an elder. Anyone could stand up and say what I say, which actually some of you could probably now demonstrate. Because if you've been to more than five weddings here, you probably know my introduction to a wedding day. God delights in marriage, folks. And that's revealed to us in a whole number of ways. One of which is that when Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30, Joseph was also 30. He did so at a wedding. Now at this wedding in Cana in Galilee, uh, the crisis came first. Here, the abundance comes first. But at, the at this wedding that Jesus went to, the, uh, 
the, the, the crisis came first. They, they ran out of wine. They ran out of anything nice to drink. This is a, this is a party. This is a party that's probably going to last a week. And to, to run out of wine was disaster. It was crisis. It was social embarrassment beyond that which any of us might ever know. Um, and then Jesus instructs the servants at that wedding to go and fill up like massive jars with water. It would be like 120, maybe 180 gallons of the highest quality wine. What's, what was Jesus doing at that point when they, when they took a ladle of what had just been water and took it to the master of ceremonies and said, drink this? He drank it and said, this, this is the best wine. Why have you saved the best wine till now? Again, I've asked the question, what's, what's the God like that you believe in? The God that Jesus reveals to us is a God of abundance, a God of over-the-top generosity and, and provision. So, well, you didn't have to provide so much. It, it didn't have to be that nice. We could have done with some cheap plonk, but you've really spoiled us with this. The, that's the first sign that Jesus records, uh, that, sorry, that John's gospel records that Jesus did. Just abundant, over-the-top generosity. That can kind of stand in contrast to, to how God is seen today. Sometimes it's only in our society, perhaps in this nation, perhaps in others, things are only attributed to God if they are bad. Now maybe this is an illustration more for the grown-ups who are used to getting insurance on things. But do you know, do you know the definition of an act of God according to... Uh, your insurance company, if you need one of those yet. Um, it, an act of God is a natural hazard outside human control, such as an earthquake or tsunami for which no person can be held responsible. Everything else, is, if something good's happened, if something indifferent has happened, that's fine. But if, but if a tsunami has happened or an earthquake has happened, that's an act of God. That might be true. It's also true that an act of God was turning water into wine. An act of God was saying, here's seven years of abundance. Here's why God gave Pharaoh the dream. So that they'd prepare. God provided. Uh, and so God is, is, is happy to, to throw a massive party. Jesus was happy to turn water into wine. But right here, we see that provision is about God's desire to save lives. God's desire, God's plan, God's heart to save Egyptians and to save Israelites, to save the family of God and to save the world, to save people who would be uh, lost and perishing without him. And maybe even there, there's a hint of, of promises that God has said uh, before. Uh, when it's said of the grain, it's like the sand of the sea, and they couldn't keep record of it any longer. It kind of reminds us of some of the promises that God has already given to God's family. One would just be in Genesis chapter 22. 
And verse 17, God speaking to Abraham, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. That's interesting that she just referenced both. When, uh, Jesus speaks to, uh, when God speaks to Abraham on another occasion, we'll say, look at the stars, go and count them, if you can. So will your offspring be. And here they've seen the, 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 the overabundant provision of God that can't even be counted. It's showing us something about God's heart, not just to provide grain, but to save people, to save lives. That God will have so many in his family that they can't be counted. So we see a God who is merciful. We also see, we see a God who's kind. It says in verse 50, before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Aspenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble on all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my sufferings. Fruitful in the land of my sufferings. That describes this series so far. Joseph has suffered. Joseph has been made fruitful. If we're a believer in God or if we're not, sometimes we can look back through life. And if we see the bad, when we see the bad stuff, when we've experienced the bad stuff, oh God, what are you doing? And when something good happens, brilliant, didn't I do well? That's attributed to something else. That was just chance. That's just life. That's my ability to fill out a job application. That was me revising hard. That was, that was me getting the job. That was me doing well. But if something bad happens, that's God. That's an act of God. Notice Joseph's soft heart. To say, I've, I, he knows he's suffered. But God, God's made me forget. Obviously, he hadn't literally forgotten but God had brought him into a time of such fruitfulness and newness. It was in such stark contrast that it had gone before. Maybe that's why it was at seven years of abundance. God could have made an, an even more abundant year and it had just been one. Why was it seven years of abundance? Well, it took all that time to gather the surplus for all nations of the world to be able to gather and say, give us some food. That's true. Maybe it's also true to say, God, to Joseph. Joseph, I know you've been through a lot. You've had years in a prison. You've had years of mistreatment. Have seven years of abundance. Have seven, have seven years of fruitfulness. I'm bringing you into a new time, Joseph. God sees the whole picture. He knows the time's coming when his brothers will turn back up. Not ready for that, Joseph. Just have seven years have seven years of a job that you enjoy, which is satisfying, where your boss trusts you, which matches the call of God on your life. Have seven years like that. Have seven years in marriage. Have, have a couple of boys. That's not just about having kids. But he experienced the kindness of God. His journey is going to continue. But look... Those blessings of God's kindness in the middle of his story just takes time to say, thank you, God. Notice, he's just been given 
an Egyptian name, but he gives his boys Hebrew names. He says, we're gods. That's our identity. That's who we are. Look at what God has done. God's made me forget. God has made me, God has made me fruitful. Now, who knows the ups and downs of our lives? But there will come a time for everyone who believes in Jesus, in heaven, in glory. It won't just be seven years of abundance. It will be abundance forever. And we will be those standing before the throne of God saying, God has made me forget. Maybe we won't literally forget, but such is the contrast. We could wax lyrical about the sufferings and there could be a lot to talk about for some of us in the room. But for eternity, we can say, God, God, you've made me forget. You've made me fruitful. I I was in a pit. I was then enslaved. I was then in prison. Um, some, in some ways I stuffed up. In some ways other people stuffed up. But now, in this position I look back and say, God's at work. God's been brought me through to here. I didn't deserve this. I've been lifted up. You put your faith in Jesus and that day will come when you're lifted up. Spiritually speaking, it's already happened. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your, your, your identity, a, a child of God. And he's already blessing you. And it won't just be in glory, in heaven, that you experience his abundance and his provision and his kindness. You'll experience that in your life. Different ways from time to time. Why? Because God is merciful and God is kind. That's the God that Jesus reveals to us. That's the God that this account reveals to us here. A God who from time to time in life will say, I know what the last few years has been like. Lie down in green pastures. There'll be some other valleys and mountains to negotiate, but you know, for this time, for this window, for this moment, just lie down. Has anyone in the room done one of those like crazy runs? This is not just like going... I know a lot of you do the 10K, and that's impressive. Uh, a half marathon or even a marathon. But there are some mad fools who do, event, uh, do like events named things such as Tough Mudder. Okay. Which is like... Doing 10K or half marathon or even longer through muddy fields over like gut-wrenching obstacles. I know, monkey bars, I don't know. Crawling under cargo nets through mud, maybe doing it as a team, but basically it's called tough mudder for a reason. And sometimes life can feel like that. Just plowing on one day, hopefully. When, where is the finish line? Can't even see it. There's so much mud. No one recognizes you because you're just plastered. But sometimes in life, even if that is the case, God knows how to pick you up, take you out, give you a shower, put you in an oxygen tent for a while. Just get refreshed. Now, come and do the rest of the run. Okay, there there is a bit more to go. But that's what has happened here to Joseph. Go on, just seven years. There you go. 
Now, obviously, it's not the whole race. Joseph hasn't finished. If we were writing the story, this is the sunset moment. This is the point where we would be tempted to have the credits roll. It's done. Wonderful. Rags to riches. Joseph made it. His dreams worked out. Good for him. Um, and that, that would be the conclusion of the story. Now, the story goes on. There's loads more to it. And it's not just about Joseph. We've seen that. We'll see that again. It's about all of God's people. And it's about what God wants to do for the whole planet. But we see in this a God who's merciful and a, and a God who's kind. What else do we see? What if we've looked at seven years of abundance and said, God brought that about? We do actually then have to move on a little bit and say, seven years of famine. God brought that about too. What are we to make of this? It would be nice just to paint the picture. So we might think, because it would be a partial picture of our own making, but it, we might think that it's nice just to paint a picture of a God who's always kind and merciful, quite soft. And then we come, and then we have to consider seven years of famine. And we think, well, isn't it amazing? Isn't God in control? And he gave the dream to Joseph, and he gave the dream to Pharaoh, and he's done this and that and the other. He still brought seven years of famine. I think, well, why did God do that? He didn't need to bring the years of abundance if he didn't bring the years of famine. Yeah, but God's in control. Yeah, but God's in control. He brought the famine, didn't he? And we can wrestle with that. And sometimes we're tempted to kind of downgrade the sovereignty of God and say, no, God didn't choose for that to happen. God's not really in control. It's just that he kind of knew that it would. No, God's in control. God knows. We were just reading earlier about the God who's working out a plan in accordance with the purpose of his will in everything. And that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We can't start scratching that out and say, no, God's only sovereign sometimes of some things. No, God's in control. God's sovereign and God has brought seven years of famine. We might look back through previous chapters of Genesis and think, well, actually, it wasn't that unusual. You go back to Genesis chapter 26 and you see that in Isaac's day, Joseph's great-granddad, there was a massive famine that required them to take action. Go back a few more chapters. Which one is it? Chapter 12? I think I might be right. Go back to chapter 12. And you see, in Abraham's day, in Abraham's day, there was a famine. And because there was a famine in Canaan, Abraham and his wife went to Egypt. What was unusual was, there, was for there to be famine in the two places at the same time. It wasn't unusual there was a famine, but for there to be a famine in both, uh, a lot had to go wrong, really. Canaan was watered from rain, falling on mountains, flowing down. Egypt was watered by the great river Nile. So that's why if there was famine in one, chances are you'd be all right in the other. What's unusual is that this drought, this famine hit everywhere. Egypt and Canaan. But we could go back a little bit further and see where it began in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve have sinned, God speaks to Adam. In Genesis 3:17 to Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. 
It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will, eat, you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will remain. So we might think, well, why did God send a famine? Why did God send the abundance? Why did God send the other famine? Why was there trouble back there? Why, why did he curse the ground? Because Adam sinned. Why did he let Adam sin? Because he'd chosen ahead of time that he would let Adam sin and that he would rather be the loving God who rescues us than the loving than the God that gives us no choices. Adam was responsible for his sin, and guess what? We're responsible for ours. The wonder of it is, is that there is a God who is prepared to rescue us from that. He is merciful, he is kind, and he is a judge. Judging sin, judging rebellion, and that judgment is frankly inescapable. Anyone living in Egypt, anyone living in Canaan, was going to experience famine, consequence of sin. And now, all of us, we're living in a world and we can't escape judgment either. Something that is to come. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, uh, let's go there just in case I get the quote wrong. Just as man is destined to die once, is how I think it begins. Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 27, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. It's inescapable. It's going to happen. There is a day of judgment. Even in the, the gospel in a nutshell, in John's gospel, those famous words in John 3 verse 16. Jesus says, John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave, he provided, mercifully, kindly, wonderfully. Um, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we can stand back and say, wow, look at the generosity of God. Look at the kindness of God. Look at a God who's gone ahead and provided abundantly for us in our crisis. Eternal life, forgiveness, goes on to say no condemnation. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's all it takes, just believing in Jesus and what he's done for us. And we're not condemned. But we stand back from the verse as well. And say, what are the implications? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Without Jesus, we perish. Without faith in Jesus, we are condemned. Because without him, we're guilty of sin. God is a holy judge. All it took was eating one piece of fruit for the whole of humanity to come under judgment. You might think, well, that's not fair. I wasn't there. If it had been me and Rach, maybe the story would have been different. Let you draw your own conclusion. Um, no. Is that, is that all it took? One bite. You're out. 
out of the garden, out of my favour. You will die because of your sin. The, cur- the, the land is cursed because of you and because of your sin. God is a holy judge. And we were just a moment ago reflecting on hell. Uh, we were reflecting on heaven rather and saying, heaven is real, this place where everyone who believes in Jesus will forget their sin and suffering. And it's at this point we reflect on the reality, what the Bible says, that there is hell awaiting for everyone who does not believe in Jesus. It's not about how many good works we may have chalked up or not. It comes down to faith. If we believe in Jesus, we're saved. If we reject Jesus, we're condemned. Our our future destination and our citizenship is heaven. If we've received him. And our future destination and our citizenship is hell if we haven't, if we don't. I think that's a bit uncomfortable, that's a bit offensive. Too right. But we might just think, well, we just want the years of abundance, please, Lord. Well, the dream spoke about abundance and it spoke about famine. Pharaoh didn't get to choose. Both dreams referenced both years. And we don't get to choose either. Notice in the story it works out and says, things happened just as Joseph said. And the whole of human history is going to work out just as God said. So how do we respond? How do we live in the light of that? At this point we could turn and and consider Joseph. This great example of faith and serving God and working hard, not getting bitter and all the rest of it. And that is a significant theme from looking at this series. But there's another example from this passage that we can learn from. How do we respond to the work of God? How do we respond? How do we live in the light of who God is and what he's doing? His mercy, his kindness and his judgment. Because you see, Joseph points us to Jesus. Joseph is saying, look at what Jesus is like. He's the ultimate saviour. There's one man on the planet who can help you at the moment. His name's Joseph. That's what could have been said back in the day. Now it's true to say there's one man who lived on the planet who's alive right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. There's one man who can help you. There's one man who can save you, and his name is Jesus. So we may learn a bit from Joseph in our own walk. Let's consider someone else's response. Let's consider the Pharaoh. Let's consider him. And it's amazing. Look, he he had a bad night's sleep. He had some bad dreams. And he said to his magicians, what do you make of this? How should I understand these dreams? And no one can understand it. And then Joseph, just think about who Joseph was at the time. Joseph, a foreigner who's been in prison and has been accused of either rape or adultery or a, a sexual assault, who's only just been shaven, is brought before the Pharaoh. And Joseph hears the dream. 
And uh, maybe all the magicians will think, Pharaoh, just chalk it off as having had too much cheese. Honestly, we don't know if there is anything to make out of your dream. And this man who's freshly out of prison, who may still smell a bit, gives him an interpretation. This is what's going to happen. You've got two dreams because God's absolutely confirmed this is what's going to happen. No avoiding it. And at that point, the king of the whole land says, I believe you. And what's more, it's not just that I believe you, but that I totally trust you. Who else has got the Spirit of God in them? They could interpret the dream and put a decent plan into effect. There you go. You see how it says it in the passage time and time again. Second in command, travelled throughout the land. Nothing's going to happen without you raising your hand. It's over to you, Joseph. It's all over to you. Is that not like a profound example of faith? Think who Joseph is demonstrating what Jesus is like to us. That is a response of faith. What are we to do? How are we to live? Totally, completely trust Jesus. Jesus, it's not just that I believe you. It's not just that I believe a few things about you. It's that I'm putting everything in your hands. I'm trusting you completely. You're in charge. Travel throughout the land. Travel, as it were, throughout my life. Nothing's going to happen without your say-so. That's Pharaoh's response. Is that our response? Has that been our response to Jesus? Things worked out just like Joseph said. Things worked out just like Jesus said. He died. He rose again. And he's ascended in heaven. And he will come back to judge us all and take those who believe in him into glory where we receive a new body, there's a new heavens and a new earth. And we say, Lord Jesus, you have helped me to forget all my sin and suffering. Wow! That's on offer for those who believe. Have you received that? Have you believed? And have you totally trusted him? Maybe there have been times when you've thought for a while, actually maybe, maybe, Maybe there's something in it. Maybe I believe some of it. Maybe I'll trust some. Maybe I'll give some of my life. Maybe that's just crossing your mind now. Keep going down that line of finding out more. But if you're there and you think, actually, I've been thinking maybe for a long time. Maybe. Maybe. Just let me think about this a bit more. And if that's you, perhaps the time has come today to say, yes, I'm all in. Be in charge of everything. I trust you, O God, through Jesus, that you will make me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And maybe you've had a lot. And that's what God wants to do. Totally trusting the one man who can save That's the response this leads us to. And secondly and finally, see how Pharaoh then spreads the word. It's slightly peculiar. Right at the beginning of the passage, we find out that Joseph is heralded. He goes through the streets, make way. This is whatever his name is, but we call him Joseph. This is Joseph. He's a second in command. 
But maybe just the people just totally forgot then while the years of abundance happened. Famine kicks in. For a little while, they're okay. They can get by on their own resources. This is all right. It's a bit tough times now, but I think we'll be okay. And then they start to feel the famine. And now they're desperate. We don't have the resources to get by. We can't cope. We don't know what's going to happen. The nation is falling around, is falling apart. The nations are in crisis. Who can save us? And they go to Pharaoh. Why didn't they go to Joseph straight away? They went to Pharaoh. But what does Pharaoh say? Go to Joseph. He's the one. He's the one that can help you. Maybe we can learn from Pharaoh's example for those of us who have believed, who have received, who are saved, who do trust in the Lord Jesus. Are we like Pharaoh saying to others who are in despair, go to him. Go to Jesus. He's the one who's made provision. He's the one with the plan. He's the one who can save you. Or do we kind of forget who we are? Do we forget what we know? Do we forget what we've heard? We kind of know that Jesus is the saviour of the world, but in the moment when we encounter someone who doesn't believe in him and is crying out in despair, we just go, oh yeah, oh man, that is really tough, isn't it? That's horrible. And maybe in, in, the, in the life of this nation at the moment, we're, we're kind of poised just to cry out as well. Oh, can anyone save us? Is it going to be Boris this time? Is it going to be Michael? Is it going to be Philip? Who's, who's, who's it going to be this time? Oh, they've gone blown it as well. You know, we're kind of just poised to join in with a despairing world saying, yeah, there's, there's no hope, is there? There's no hope. Now, don't put your hope in a human leader. But recognize at that point, when the world is gathering round saying, we're hopeless, we're in despair, we don't know where to go, what's going to happen to us, is that let's remember what we know. Let's remember what we've heard. Let's remember what we believe. There is a saviour, and he has a plan. And he's working it through, at a big scale, at the fine detail, with a conclusion that can't be altered. He's gone ahead of us. He's provided. He's made the way. If you give your life to him, like Joseph, we're going to still have some ups and downs. But we'll be in that glorious destination with him forever. And we'll know his blessing and his kindness here and now as well. Is that our response? Are we hiding our light? Are we forgetting what we know? Or are we trusting the one who's come to save us?